0: Platypus says, "Episode
1: twenty-three. Funny how Big Farm is so evil till now. <laughs> it's like, what's it? Two hundred dollars a pill? Yeah, that's good. That's fine. I'll take. Give me all you got. Oh, I can't touch my fucking face." <laughs> Remember the good old days when washing your hands didn't take three hours? <laughs> they gave CD, uh, just take me now.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean I'm feeling pretty claustrophobic. I live I'm staying with my boyfriend in London in his like small flat. And I'm feeling pretty claustrophobic. It's all pretty crazy. Yeah, I I am going a little nuts. No fun right now, and also I guess the state. Well, in the U, I don't know about other countries, but the, in the UK, they're implementing major action to supplement people's um, wages. My job, for instance, if my company can't afford to keep me on, then the the state is going to intervene and possibly pay up to eighty percent of people's wages, which is which is a big deal. Well, that's nice.
0: Is it just for people with
2: contracts? Yeah. So I don't know. Um, Freelancers are, are pressuring the government to take action on the part of their livelihoods as well. And we'll see. I don't know what's going to happen there. But I guess the idea is to keep people in jobs, um, to keep people earning and people spending um, so the whole economy doesn't collapse. Did you read the Jacobin article? Sorry, it's not Jacobin. Spike Spiked magazine. They're, they're talking about, so they've published a couple of articles now, um, most recent one by Brendan O'Neill. They're anti, like the state, the anti-state intervention, basically, and upholding like a libertarian point of view that we should be free to, we shouldn't be like managed by a nanny state, like freedom to dissent, I think.
0: He was talking about the bill, the coronavirus bill, which was published recently and that would hand the state, quote unquote, terrifyingly broad powers, which includes that the police and immigration officers can detain a person for a limited period who is or may be infectious and Mm -hmm. take them to a suitable place to enable screening and assessment. And so they were like, you know, sounding the alarm like this is giving the state, Giving the police and immigration officers a lot of power, yeah.
2: But it might be, yeah. I guess what the government is trying to do is, or the yeah, the state is trying to manage the crisis, um, so that the NHS yeah. is like not overwhelmed at a certain point, point. and so they try and like I don't know, the the saying has been like flatten the curve, and so that if you do fall ill, you'll be able to receive treatment. I think is the idea, rather than this huge spike in number of people needing medical assistance and um them not being able to be seen yeah i I got the sense from this bright article that um and i think our member stefan raised this that they just kind of avoid talking about capitalism as if there's just like bourgeois social relations and we are going about our kind of going about our lives and then we have to uphold this idea of liberty which might not be untrue but it kind of avoids the bigger crisis
0: I honestly haven't seen like any good critique of the capitalist rackets that are getting in the mm-hmm. way of like an effective prevention mm-hmm. of the spread. So in America, for example, you have this lack of testing, there isn't enough testing kits. Well, wasn't the whole idea of having pharmaceutical companies and privatization of healthcare that they're innovative and they can advance like better technologies than, you know, some sort of nationalized health system? like? where is the innovation like where is it what's happening also like the NHS I was reading they don't have nearly enough ventilators as necessary to cover like an, a pandemic in in the UK what what's going on like isn't don't you guys have like a national healthcare system like is that just like another racket like what happened then the one of the PMs like sent out a tweet to call on the private companies in the UK to please provide them with manufacturing of ventilators. That's how this is being handled. Like, here's where I just feel kind of like just a, I don't know, I'm like a basic bitch liberal subject. I just want to be like, where is the management of government? Why isn't capitalism supposedly going to be advanced so that innovation, technology, competitive, like all all of the stuff that we've been told, right? And I guess I Mm. haven't read the, I haven't read a critique of this. I mean. Jacobin and other people in that circle, they just say this is the proof that Medicare for all is necessary. Okay, well, if, like, at least somewhat of the model here is the NHS, the NHS is not functioning either. So, like, what are we talking about here? Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. I don't
2: know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I guess you have these leftists that want Medicare for all have dropped any idea of socialism or a, a deeper left concern as well and it just becomes about medicare or the nhs or something
0: i just read this stuff on the left and i just like don't see anything there's nothing Is this the same ideas being thrown around Naomi klein just came back she's like did you read my book i already talked about it shock doctrine already talked about it in moments of crisis there's going to be the implementation of draconian ideas etc okay so she's what? been saying that for over a decade check Zizek? I think Zizek was like his usual self. He's like, the left is afraid of draconian measures. However, the real question is, does state power really have control over what's going on? Like, is that even what's happening right now? Like, or is the left sort of comfortable with this narrative of critiquing state power without actually recognizing that the situation is much worse than this?
2: With the Klein, she's saying that there's these moments of, of crisis where things... And she quotes Milton Friedman here, I think, that only in a crisis can real change be produced. The actions that are taken depend on ideas that are lying around. And so there's this like, opportunity in this moment of crisis. Um, but is it going to be Trump? Or is it going to be Bernie Sanders? She kind of upholds like Sanders' ideas as sensible and fair and designed to keep as many people safe and secure and as healthy as possible. So this is like part of
0: her thesis in the Shock Doctrine, That like in moments of crisis, they're seen as opportunities by capitalist leaders so that this push for kind of radical free market ideas are popularized like in times like this. And the suspension of democracy, right? It's like the suspension of democracy as well as this radical free market policies that support the 1%. That's what happens in this moment of crisis, but potentially it could be an opportunity in the way that she says, the Great Depression was an opportunity in the 1920s, mm-hmm. which led to the New Deal of the 1930s.
2: She would see that as an opportunity for the the left.
0: The pandemic shock right. doctrine under Trump as an opportunity for the left. What left? Who's she talking about? Is she really talking about Bernie Sanders? Because he's done. Like I don't understand what we're talking about now. You I know, think she's Bernie Sanders Bernie was Sanders. asked the other day. Well, I mean, she's. You know, a month too late. Like, (laughs) the thing is,
2: the thing is, they they know this. The people um advocating Sanders right now know he's gonna lose as well, but they still do it. I don't know. (laughs) It's all a bit of a depressing, right? It's like, can we say what we mean? Like, what are we
0: actually talking about when we make these protests? Mm -hmm. I don't know, Sophia. Maybe I'm moving towards the right now. Done. Done with the (laughs) left. Coronavirus,
2: Pam, done with the left. Uh-huh. There is no left. And um, what we have right now is then on the ground. The so... left is dead,
0: guys. See?
2: It's the the coronavirus has
0: getting to me. I forgot. I forgot. Left is dead. Left is dead. It's never been more dead. Where it has nothing to say. No. Nothing to say. You know who has something to say? Who? Cardi B.
2: Oh I saw this. I saw this 20 minutes ago. I was watching this. She
0: really is like a national real treasure. Real. The shit is getting She's real with welcome to a special quarantine edition of Shit Platypus Says. This is Pamela Norales, I am your co-host, along with Sophia Freeman. This episode of Shit Platypus Says comes in three parts. In the first, I talk to Platypus members about the left's response to the coronavirus. I hit up Lori Rojas, Chris Catron, and Stefan Hein to figure out just what David Harvey, Naomi Klein, the Socialist Workers' Party USA, and Zizek are saying in these times of Corona. Then we hear from Wentai, our resident financial guru, from the front lines of Wall Street to hear just how this pandemic is impacting the American and thus potentially the world economy. In the last segment, Sophia sits down with Philip Cummuth in London For a post-panel reflection on our after-the-election panel at the London School of Economics. Phil is a political scientist and lecturer at the University of Kent. He's also the founder of the full Brexit. They discuss the failure of luxury communism and the relationship between the left and democracy. Finally, the Platypus Convention 2020 will be going virtual this year unfortunately. But you can still tune in and ask questions starting next week on Thursday, April 2nd to Saturday, April 4th. Our panels include The Politics of Environmentalism as Utopia, The American Revolution and the Left, Bonapartism, How is the State Revolutionary, Socialism in the 21st Century? Question mark. Participants include Kirsten Parenti, August Nimtz, Alex Gorvich, Helena Rosenblatt, John Beecham, Chris Catrone, and yours truly. And we will include those links in the episode description. All of our activities, reading groups, and coffee breaks will be happening online. If you are anywhere in the world, you can tune in. They will be on our website, www.platypus1917.org. That's the name, Platypus, followed by the numeral 1917 org it's a long episode enjoy it here we go Hello, hello. Hi, Lori.
3: Hi, Pam.
0: Hi, uh, hi. okay, so uh, I'm calling you because I am supposed to, you know, report for Platypus and listeners what the left is saying about coronavirus, but uh, yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting a little frustrated. She's getting real! Shit is getting real. <laughs> she Shit is, is getting, getting real, but I don't know if the left has anything to say. I'm... I'm reaching the bottom of the bucket, and so I, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you. So I read, I read the Socialist Workers Party U.S. Uh, newspaper called the Militant. Um, mm-hmm. The SWP, for those listening out there, was the the parent organization to the Dear Spartacus League, the Pabloists, who uh, you know supported the Cuban Revolution back in the day, and. Um, they're still at it. They're you know the whole article that I read about COVID nineteen was really about Cuba, and they they want to make this contrast mm-hmm. between the the capitalist countries yeah. and then the non capitalist countries. Third
3: worldism of Trotskyism. Yeah,
0: they they talk about how in revolutionary Cuba, um, every person is treated and. Unlike the harsh shutdowns and the class-driven priorities for hospital space, um, everyone is cared for irrespective of their travel or contact history, and so it doesn't matter where you're from. Um, Everyone that arrives to Cuba is checked for signs of disease and then given a hospital bed. No one is left on their own, and special care is provided for the most vulnerable so
3: yeah that might be true meaning obviously cuba has an amazing reputation for its medical care right but at the same time meaning this is kind of sad like i had my family in cuba messaging me Mm -hmm. asking me how i was last week and when i asked them back how were they doing basically they're starving they're getting my family in miami is mailing them food oh shit from miami to cuba because they have no food mm.
0: so they're healthy to starve exactly. but what why what's going on is there a particular shortage
3: right now like is this new do you know uh that's that's i really i i can it seems like obviously post death of castro there's been a whole new wave there's been a different kind of like resistance to the the, they're hunkering down and i think um there are definitely problems but it seemed um it's it's multiple conditions and covid i think is making things harder like right now the situation in the island is really really rough
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no i wonder if it also has to do with the decline in the rest of latin america the political crisis you know
3: i know that cuba Venezuela was a big source yeah, exactly. of relations for Cuba. And resources, absolutely,
0: no. yeah, so I know that their diplomacy is based on this kind of smaller circle of countries that they can get uh, food, oil, etc. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just thought, you know, it's like, okay, what does the left have to say in time of crisis? Um, mm-hmm. Like the same things that it's been saying, you know? Nada. Yeah, absolutely. Nada. Nada. Yeah, I saw that video that you sent me of the Cuban guy, and he's he's really angry because all these celebrities, all these Latin American celebrities, are like stay home, like be responsible. No, no, no,
3: no, no. That was Panama, though. Oh, is that that a Panama dude from Panama, bitching and complaining, and rightfully so about all the rich celebrities, all the like rich Panamanians making their little videos about staying at home, and he's like, motherfucker, look at my house. You know, uh, like who the hell wants to stay indoor here? My fridge I ain't got no food. You know, he was he was funny, but also very real. He was real angry. He was yeah. like, I'm eating ice.
0: What are you doing playing tennis in your house? Yeah, Kim Kardashian yeah. also made a couple of these videos, like, just be responsible, guys.
3: Nah. <laughs> In my 4,000 square meter Must house, be nice. it's probably even bigger than Must that. Must
0: be nice, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cardi B was clapping back, though. She was
3: like, oh, <laughs> did you see the Britney Spears? Did you see the Britney Spears is calling, like, no. for, like, oh, Britney Spears is, like, I basically calling for general strike. People can DM her. She can buy them Pampers and food and everything. And she was like, "Yes, let's strike." What? What? Yeah, what are you talking Britney about? Spears. She talking yeah. about general strike. She called it a general strike. What you <laughs> call it? No, she didn't. People are reading it general strike, but um, but she just said strike. Oh, um, but what strike with whom? With how? What? And people love this thing about like Britney being a Marxist. I do not know where that comes from. Um, Cause you better work, uh, bitch. <laughs> Better work. <laughs> um, but wait, I mean,
0: here's the thing you know, there is this question of whether or not it's responsible just to tell people to like strike without any organization, yeah. you know? Of course, of course. If they are going to lose their that's jobs. What I
3: keep. Um, it's unfortunate that I feel like that's been my role, like a few people who are not on the left, but are like friends from the art world. Uh, no, like really sort of like what's, what's up with like everybody posting about like striking, rent strikes, uh, rent strikes. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, okay, look, I I honestly would obviously support, but you can't just like she's like, should I pay my rent? And I'm like, look, you have to have several hundred thousand people organized in Germany for this to be effective and you not to get into trouble. Find and your it just, local like, tenants. It's just horrible union. to be the person that has to fall to say this right like it's such like my instinct of my generation of our generation to be like it needs to be properly organized guys otherwise it's just pure failure but to even be put in the position to be the one who has to say that but let just like lost I don't think it's the instinct lost, of our no.
0: generation I mean if we're talking about the post occupy millennial left it's sort of resistance or yeah. something but I do think that people should join their local tenants unions if there are if there are yeah, there. Yeah, um, And you should organize a collective struggle for a rent strike. And, um, yeah. yeah, people out there okay. that don't have the resources because they won't be able to pay their rent should try to seek out organization. And so I think that's the most responsible thing to say. I, I think, yeah, yeah, you should, you should say that to people. That's true. Um, well, uh, maybe uh, Britney Spears and Cardi B will save us and uh
3: (laughs) (laughs) i love cardi b man i really do like she's like that that she's getting real she was she was good yeah that that was amazing
0: (laughs) thank you Lori. talk soon okay bye Bye. and let me tell you something
1: the the general public people that work regular jobs people that get regular paychecks the middle class the you know poor whatever the crap they're not getting they're not getting treated like 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 the high you know the ones that appear like celebrities and everything they're not getting that fucking
4: coronavirus. <laughs>
5: Hello, Pam.
0: Hey, Chris. So I was reading, you know, as one does, the left, the left's response to coronavirus, and I read that Harvey was um, was saying that you know maybe this is some kind of nature taking its revenge on the human species or something.
5: God. So, you know, I was just teaching some of my academic students, my epistemology students, uh, we were talking about how for ancient peoples, they might conceive of something like the coronavirus as a plague, as a divine judgment and punishment, right? So it's the, the, the angry spirits of the bats and the pangolins who are, uh, wreaking their havoc, punishing humanity for abusing them. Uh, Whereas, of course, we conceive of it as a virus because of what we're going to do in practice to respond to it. You know, we're not going to pray. We're not going to do penance. uh, We're going to, you know, try to address it practically as molecular biology. But, you know the Left, they might just be stuck in that religious mode,
0: yeah. Yeah, I was watching Neil deGrasse Tyson the other day, you know, just to feel optimistic about science, uh, <laughs> just trying to remember that there's lots that we did not know that we know, yeah. But David Harvey's going back to the mythos or something, I don't know, like human species without consciousness, yeah. I don't know, uh, it's kind of wretched. I've been talking to platypus members about, you know, the, the response on the left. And they're just saying the same thing that they are saying before the virus, right? So they're just kind of amplifying it mm-hmm. a bit, it seems.
5: It's just the same stuff.
0: Yeah, it's the same stuff. It's like endless repetition. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's an opportunity or something in the way that the Great Depression was an opportunity, so New Deal.
5: Yep. No, I was thinking about the, um, the stimulus package or the relief package. I guess it's not really a stimulus package in the U.S. Congress and how mm-hmm. the Democrats tried to add... Cutting the emissions of the airlines as a Mm -hmm. precondition Mm -hmm. for bailing them out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I recalled that AOC, you know, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, she had said that people should fly less, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That we should look forward to flying less. And of course, now people are flying less. So I hope she's happy.
0: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Naomi Klein came out and, you know, she was saying this is the opportunity now not to fund the dirty technology and to fund the Green New Deal?
5: You know, it's funny with, with Naomi Klein in particular because she's the author of The Shock Doctrine, which is about disaster capitalism and about how capitalism make, makes an opportunity out of every disaster. Um, mm-hmm. There's also been circulating recently uh, the Rahm Emanuel quotation from the 2008 economic crisis when he was uh, coming in as the chief of staff under Obama. Mm-hmm that uh, you shouldn't waste the opportunity of a crisis, right? No no crisis should go wasted. Um, and so, you know, I mean, yes, there's that kind of political opportunism um, going on. Uh, but, yeah, it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy that, um, you know, that this is going to remake the economy in some permanent way.
6: Mm.
0: Do you think that the crisis presents an opportunity for capitalism to reconstitute itself in a different form or is it just going to be solved uh, through the present forms of valuation?
5: Well, that's, you know, that's a good question. I would say that, um, you know, I've been harping on on this for a few years now about the crisis of neoliberalism, meaning certain changes are going to happen anyway. And this might hasten that process. But Mm -hmm. I've also been, you know, Uh, Very anxious to say That this doesn't mean Going back to like pre-neoliberalism And it doesn't mean a kind of anti-neoliberalism Like a kind of fascism or whatever people say But that it's post-neoliberalism Meaning it will be Neoliberalism modified It will be based Mm. on um, You know it will be a post-service economy It won't be like a non-service economy Or something like that
0: Mm Mhm. Mhm. So not New Deal 2 but Post-neoliberalism with, like, neoliberalism version two?
5: I think so, right? Um, okay. You know, the New Deal, of course, has never gone away, meaning we mm-hmm. still have, uh, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we still have all the New Deal stuff. None of that stuff went away. And, indeed, we still have the 60s Great Society programs, too. None of those went away. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Naomi Klein is talking about that Trump's taking this as an opportunity to suspend the payroll tax and that could bankrupt Social Security and that it would be a push for privatizations.
5: Of course, she's Canadian. What does she know? She doesn't understand the American system. She doesn't understand that the Social Security deduction is separate from the payroll tax. If you look on your pay stub, there are three things. There's uh, you know, income tax, and then there's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and those mm-hmm. are separate. Those are totally separate. Um, line items, so he's not talking about suspending that. So, of course, she doesn't know anything, so. Mm.
0: (laughs) So, it's the same thing, though. It's in terms of uh, New Deal terms, like this is an opportunity for the New New Deal. This is the opportunity to fund clean technology and to show that a social safety net is necessary. So, Medicare, Medicaid, but really universal single payer.
5: Yeah, so it's 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 interesting, right? I mean, my critique of of Medicare for all is why would you want to have tax money, public money paying for private health care? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, why, why would you want that? Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like a good idea. The point is to cut costs, you'd really need a right. nationalized health care system where doctors and nurses worked for the government. But the idea that they're going to be private That they're still going to work for private hospitals, private health care providers, and, uh, you know, that the government's just going to foot the bill. I mean, Mm -hmm. what people don't understand is that, of course, someone like Bernie, you know, Bernie Sanders calling for Medicare for all, he understands that as not a goal, but as a step along the way. It's a negotiating position vis-a-vis Obamacare health insurance Mm. reform, it's that, but it's also, if it were to be implemented, it is a step towards a national health system. Uh, Government employed doctors and nurses. Mm -hmm. You know, that's gonna take a long time to transition because the government is gonna pay doctors and nurses what private healthcare providers pay them now.
0: Didn't you say they would have to be brought in from India?
5: Yeah, and that's already the case. In other words, you got a lot of Filipino nurses, you got a lot of Indian doctors, You got a lot of people who aren't carrying the kind of student loan debt already filling in a large part of the health care service in the United Mm -hmm. States. And so we'd have to go more in that direction, at least Mm -hmm. as a transition, right? Uh, I mean, you know, again, people don't understand that the things that are being offered, that this is not like the New Deal, and it's not like the Great Society under LBJ. Because when FDR did the New Deal, he had a commanding majority in Congress. Mm -hmm. And when LBJ did the Great Society, he had a commanding majority in Congress. They could just implement these things. Whereas now, of course, it's a very complicated uh, negotiation. And not only between the Democrats and the Republicans, but among the Democrats.
0: Within the parties. Yeah. Within the parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So Bernie Sanders is out.
5: Is he out out?
0: No, no. I mean, <laughs> I like the Rona, the Rona hit him. He's out. He's gone. No, 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 no. He's he's still in the race, but uh, it's not going to be him. Yeah. Uh, Although Joe Biden seems to have gone missing. So there's that.
5: I was going to say, I mean, really, Biden is out, right? Mm. Um, meaning, I've I've always said that Biden may not make it to November, actually, and you know Bernie's yeah. in much better health. You know, I mean, he he's got, I would say, no problem, right? At least he's lucid. Yeah, he's totally lucid. I mean, he had his senior moments in the yeah, uh, cool. last debate that he had with Biden, in which he mm. he called the coronavirus uh, H1N1. He called it Ebola. Like he had his senior moments his too. Moment. Yeah. But they were more verbal than mental, whereas with, yeah. you know, Biden was pretty on yeah. on top of things. They, they gave him his nap. and They,
0: mu- they must have fed him or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's on a new diet. He's on a he new diet. Him full diet.
5: of drugs, you know, gave him a shot, <laughs> pushed him out on stage.
0: So so I, I heard Doug Lane's uh, episode, and you were like, Bernie never even wanted to win. True. You know, that this was a whole, like, pressure tactic on the democratic party that's what it was from the beginning that's what it is now and that's what it's always going to be and now it's whether or not the bernie people are just going to accept biden or you know who knows i guess before the man dies i don't know
5: mm-hmm. well we'll mm. see but mm. you know i don't know i guess people on the left are now talking about that trump might cancel the election which of course will not oh, all right yeah of yeah. course that will not happen
0: no they're still saying the same thing we're all living under fascism
5: right and, uh, you know, that's that's simply not going to happen. Uh, that's their strangely distorted fantasy of what will happen, which is that Trump will be reelected. hmm. Right. So they might as well yeah. cancel the election. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, stay safe, Chris. And, uh, you know, stay healthy.
5: You too, Pam. All I right. mean, yeah, we're gonna just, uh, we gotta soldier through this.
0: Yeah, sure. Whatever. I mean, wash your hands, eat some soups. I don't know, draw something, write the book that you've been wanting to write. Just do something with yourselves, I guess.
5: Absolutely. And uh,
0: yeah, stay safe.
5: Cool. Bye, Chris. Okay. Right. To-
0: <coughs> man. Man, <coughs> man, up,
1: Move. You got coronavirus. Ooh, shit, you got coronavirus. We ain't finna do shit with this coronavirus. I ain't finna take a trip with this coronavirus. Move, bitch, you got coronavirus. Ooh, shit, you got coronavirus. We ain't finna do shit with this coronavirus. I ain't finna take a trip with this coronavirus. I'ma chill at the crib because I'm safe here. I ain't even about to drink me a corona beer. I'm about to stay at the crib for about a year. And I ain't coming back out until this shit clear. I didn't done- but uh, and now I'm sniffling,
4: and
1: I don't know what that is. could be the cocaine, I guess. <laughs> I'm so nervous about this goddamn, and then so I take cocaine, you know. And then that makes the anxiety even more crippling. It's funny that we all now know how we're going to die. It's just a matter of what order at this point. You got coronavirus, ooh shit, you got coronavirus. We ain't finna do shit with this coronavirus. I ain't finna take a trip with this coronavirus.
4: Is a virus alive? Is it like a life form or not? It's kind of a philosophical question.
0: Is it alive? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, so Zizek asked this question as well. He, he, he said that it's an oscillation between life and death, that viruses are neither alive nor dead, they are the living dead, that it is alive due to its drive to replicate, but it's a kind of zero-level life.
4: I can understand why Zizek uh, has that take, I mean, I've read the piece as well, and we don't really know if viruses evolved from bacteria, if it's like a new form of uh, single-cell life, or if it was part of a living thing, which then got some autonomy in replicating itself. But chizek is focused on the replication. It's this Lacanianism, you know, it's the endless repetition without content. That's why he's so focused on it, I guess.
0: Okay, so it is a malfunction. So I think that part fits with the sort of Lacanian framework. It's a malfunction of a higher mechanism. This is just him quoting Schelling actually, that continues to haunt slash infect the human species, but something that cannot be reintegrated into human life, into this higher level of life, and that it haunts them, Um, that there's a kind of misdirection within the development of the species that nonetheless is part of the species, and that one has to cope with it.
4: Yes, but like in another piece like I've heard today that GJ is going to publish a book on the coronavirus and in this short preview he says that this virus is going so to speak uh, restitute society that this is going to be the end of the era of nationalism and that it's going to reforge a human society because it will bring consciousness again to the fact that we are one society which is cannot be divided by national lines when we have to manage or fight or however you want to call it a threat such as the virus right now? Mm.
0: So. I don't know about this issue of optimism in the book. The book, by the way, is called Calm Down and Panic. Uh, It it won't be available until April, I think. But in the piece in the Philosophical Salon, what he's making an argument about is that the left has these complaints about the authoritarianism of the state. And he's like, "That's, that's the sort of, the instinct of the left is to say that the draconian measures are coming. But he says that actually what the pandemic shows is that the state is in crisis and that its authority is in crisis and that it cannot provide a good account of the damage that the virus is doing. And that's something to fear, in fact.
4: Yeah, I think like that's where we get like a classic Zizek. Like he is reacting. He's reacting to, mm-hmm. I think, mostly Giorgio Agamben, who released a statement that there was a panic around the virus, which was much bigger threat than the virus itself, and that this was some kind of proto-fascism installing itself right now, that we were going down to mere physical beings instead of humans, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I think Zizek uh, is right in trying to criticize this. But then there's the problem of all uh, quote-unquote left critique of the last at least 50 years, That is just an anti-statement. It's not really a critique, I think, because now Zizek is saying, look, Agamben's wrong, like, it's not all pessimistic and the totalitarian state taking over, but this is our chance for a new society.
0: Zizek has nothing to say about the reconstitution of a socialist left. In fact, he says, kind of, he's very straightforward about it, because he's like, you know, the ultimate choice, as long as, you know, as far as he, he he's concerned, and this is his optimism, is either this, what we are now, or some kind of reinvented communism. Zizek, this is, like, extremely underspecified, but um, at worst, it's some kind of, like, uh, Jacobinism or something. But... Um, I guess, okay, I thought that it was valuable insofar as when I read the spiked online piece, they were talking as, like, the authority of of the state and the law and, like, this is what the left needs to watch out for, right? Like, this is what we need to be aware. The Zizek piece is, like, a redirecting of attention where it's, like, the issue is not that the state authority is ratcheted up, right? And, in fact, that the state may not be able to understand what the problem is, and that in that there is both an opportunity and a problem, yeah.
4: Yes. Yes, I, I see that too. I mean, um, uh, one of the German Platypus members told me, and I found this to be very helpful, like the state claims to be made for this situation, like we need the state for situations like this, but then it, when it comes to a situation like this, the state shows that it's not capable right. of solving the problem, so to speak. Right. And this is the the contradiction which we have to face that on the one hand the state is like an almost monolithic institution which with incomparable power. But on the other hand it's also part of an anarchic system of production and capitalism with running with interests running against each other. And I think the call for also like what we now need is a technocratic solution like how should this even be possible there's also no such thing as the technocratic opinion like every scientist has a political agenda has different ideas about how a state should intervene and stuff like this so i think on the one hand it's very important to focus on the role of the state in this crisis but also not contribute to mystifying it as an agency which could handle this problem if it just wanted to. I think there are structural reasons in capitalism why the state cannot handle it in a way which we all hope it would. Mm -hmm. Sure, like I I wouldn't care who leads the state if they really could take care of this crisis, if they could solve it, could save millions of lives. Sure, I hope for that. It's my society as well. But the question is is the state capable of doing something like this? It doesn't seem to me right now.
0: No, and it says, so it's not only the state and other agencies that will control us. We should learn to control and discipline ourselves.
4: Occupy is totally forgotten. And uh, on the one hand, I appreciate that because Occupy was kind of horrible if you actually lived through it um, and tried to take it seriously. But on the other hand, like there are anarchist ideas, which I still found to be interesting right now. I've read that a part for um, respiratory machines um, was receiving a shortage in Italy, and that this piece of a machine, which is as big as a thumb, costs $11,000, and people stole the engineering plants and published them so that people could print them out on their 3D printers.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially because when you were talking about earlier this one I brought up with Sophia about the state and the chaos that it's unable to discipline. Ventilators, like the production of ventilators in the UK. They have the NHS. Like, isn't that the least that they could do? They could figure out and I guess the issue is people are saying this is the historically unprecedented rate at which this thing has spread. And yet I think, you know, there was a Bill Gates talk like four years ago that was like, we're not prepared, we're not for an epidemic. And you know, like there were plenty of messages there. The writing was on the wall that there needed to be preparation. And so capitalism doesn't work in this way either, right? It's like, supposed to be innovative. And yet like, what is this?
4: Right. And I think therefore it's like, now we're in the situation again, if we're being real, We're bystanders. We just can look at what happens right now. And I guess there's something as such as personal responsibility for sure. And I'd like people to handle this responsibly. I guess for quite a lot of people, it's going to be the first time in their lives that they have to think about something which is bigger than themselves. And this is a difficult task to handle. There is nothing like quote-unquote the people could do about this and I guess this is something where like if we were in a real political situation a socialist mass party would on the one hand seek to criticize the government and the state while on the other hand um, not not trying to blockade or boycott it in its efforts to help people. I don't know in how far... In how far can Schelling be mediated through postmodernist thought to come back to, okay, look, it's just as it is right now, all of language, all of our rational thinking is just a mystification? Like that philosophical thought, I find to be kind of boring.
0: Or to make an academic leftist point. I mean, Zizek is ultimately. You know, an academic, but I, again, I think I was trying to read it within the context of what I read. I read like you know Spiked Online. I read the D M Twenty Five, you know where fuck is and I read Harvey, and I read like the, the the Jacobin stuff and this stuff. And I was like, okay, what what has what has he been able to do? Like in if the piece has done anything, I have no idea. But at least its aim is to redirect the question. Um, redirect a question. Is there, like, a way of redirecting the question towards a crisis of the state and the dictatorship of the proletariat? That's, uh, I don't know. Um, but he is kind of asking that
4: question. Well, yes, on the one hand he is kind of asking it, but then on the other hand he is, I think, apologizing also for it in a in kind of way, you know, he's dragging it again to somehow something of an intellectual question. And it's not that it's not an intellectual question, it is but it's more than an intellectual question. And also, again, like, it also is a question of science right now, and science itself is rather speculating about what we're dealing with. So I think Zizek, in trying to demystify things, is also contributing to mystification himself, because, like, when we're really coming down to the question, I guess I'm orthodox Segellian. I think that language carries objectivity, that language carries a part of the truth and that the language we use reflects part of the outer reality, that it's not just arbitrary, that we're not just socially constructing our reality, but in doing so we're also like doing labor on the object of nature, of reality itself, like and that's something I think Zizek is not really believing, yeah. and in that far I disagree with the way he presents Schelling, I guess. Zizek
0: is part of the mystification of the dead left, that's certainly true. Um, if, if there's anything to, to, to do is place him within that spectrum of the rest of the
4: left. Like with any of the left, are they really talking about this virus at all? Or aren't they just repeating what they were saying all the time again? Yes. This, absolutely. And there I mean, that's that's absolutely there this is yeah. where you got G repetition. And this is right. But yeah. he's only responding to it symptomatically. He's not seeing that mm-hmm. he is part of this repetition, that it's the left that keeps repeating itself over and over again. Being not really alive, not really dead and this kind of virus is what I wish for a vaccination against that the left keeps repeating and reproducing its own bad education.
0: I guess we're a broken record too though you know that here it's the true the absence of the left, you know, that is just repeating the the diagnosis of crisis and opportunity at the same time. Is there anything to learn? from reading these people today. I guess I had a level of frustration. I reached uh, my limit. I read a lot of things. I don't find any like uh, truth in what I'm reading, so.
4: Yes, I understand that. And I'd also like for this, for the necessity for us being the broken record to be extinct also.
0: Well, I guess we're not gonna talk about chilling. And that's what you've told me. (laughs) Um, All right, Stefan. Any last words?
4: Stay hydrated, stay safe, stay sane.
0: And wash your fucking hands. Yeah, went I? Hey, so give it to me straight. I I need a reality check. What's what's happening? What's going on with the economy?
6: Um, the reality of the situation is that containment is causing millions of people to lose their jobs in the U.S. And just to give you some perspective on this, I mean. I, uh, You know, if you think back on the great financial crisis in early um the number of weekly initial jobless claims peaked around 650,000. Now, tomorrow, we're going to get that piece of data for the week that just ended, um, March 21st. And I'm seeing estimates in the 1.5 million to 2.5 million range. Um, I mean, these are staggering, crazy figures and and frankly they're 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 pretty frightening um so you know i think going forward um there's a huge question on the table which is you know are we going to be able to recover these millions of jobs by the summer are we going to be able to recover these millions of jobs um you know soon enough to um stave off a, a you know a worst case scenario so
0: what's the Worst-case scenario and what's what's the alternative to the worst-case scenario? What's the best possible scenario?
6: I think the worst-case scenario at this point is um, a multi-year depression. I mean, the way that that would happen is you have mass layoffs. Those mass layoffs destroy a lot of demand. That kind of demand destruction um, forces a lot of businesses to go under, and that produces even more layoffs, Right. Um, capital at that moment chooses the worst possible time to um, withdraw itself, to freeze up, and that just prolongs and deepens the trough, right? Um, There's moments in which the the productive reconstitution of capital just gets structurally whacked. And um, in those types of moments, I I think you could look at years of not quarters, not months, you know, but, but years of of a period of depression. And I know I sound ridiculous right now, because you're probably asking yourself, like, like, it's a flu, we stayed home for a couple of weeks, how could something like this cause a depression? And I think the thing to really emphasize is that, you know, it's really all about jobs, 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 the economy is all about jobs. Um, the basis for value in society remains labor. The basis for value in capitalism is labor. And um, remobilizing labor is absolutely critical to productively reconstituting capital and therefore society. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, that would be a really, um, that'd be a really shit situation. And I think in that situation, um, what would happen is you know intervention doesn't work to basically recreate millions of jobs. And um, how you would see that is um, you know we pass fiscal stimulus, doesn't work to um, keep up aggregate demand and efforts to um, recreate jobs either through pushing you know the big businesses to hire um, or the government making a direct intervention effort. Those don't work. Um, I would remind people that during the 30s, um, FDR and the New Deal, that didn't rejuvenate the US economy. I mean, what had to happen was the US had to go to World War II um, 10 years after the Great Depression actually started. uh, That's how you created millions of new jobs. And um, that's how you got uh, US GDP to resume its trend line in terms of growth. So that's the really bad scenario. I can just as easily, honestly, imagine a pretty positive scenario. That positive scenario um, would be one that, you know, stimulus does work. It ties households and small and medium-sized businesses over for now. You don't see as much aggregate demand destruction as you otherwise would have expected. Um, You basically, um, in addition to that stimulus and more importantly, you see massive, massive dramatic intervention um, to actually create mil- to create millions of jobs. Um, maybe you get that through a massive infrastructure bill. Maybe uh, millions of people are put to work um, building smart cities and the Hyperloop and shit like that. It's entirely possible. Um maybe big businesses do end up absorbing a ton of market share from the smaller ones that go under and um they put up massive hiring programs although i think in that case like you got to um think about also how as a company gains scale it probably pays off to um you know go and automate a bunch of the jobs that um they've absorbed so you know basically if a million jobs have been lost, and all of those sales, let's say, accrue to a big business, um, it's unlikely that they would, you know, go and hire a million people. Um, They'd probably find a slightly more efficient way to do things. But maybe they hire like 300,000 people, right? That's possible. Anyway, so there's a variety of combinations of things that could possibly get you the upside scenario. Um, yeah, so I think both scenarios honestly are on the table. And um, it's, it's, it's alarming that the first one is on the table. Um, And I really hope um, the second one, I hope the second one plays out. I really do. Um, For like, yeah, mostly just reasons that I think the first one would, would be miserable. And um, I know society is like already devastating its own potential. Um, but, but, but that could be uglier. It could be uglier.
0: So what's the difference now between 2007, 2008 and what's happening right now? Like, how would you characterize that?
6: This situation I think is very different than 08, very different than the Great Depression. I think it's very different than 08 because that's a crisis of confidence in the banking sector, um, which then, you know, became a crisis of confidence in the real economy. So one way to put it would be, you know, business businesses failed because banks failed in 08. This time it's totally different, right? You're seeing a massive, massive shock to the real economy. I mean, think about those jobless claims numbers um, that I gave you earlier. It's it's really like nothing that people in our generation at least have seen before. Um, And so, and it's that crisis of confidence in the real economy that actually has not yet translated into a crisis of confidence in global financial institutions. So, it's a totally different situation. And I also get the sneaking suspicion that people who are comparing this to 08 are probably um, doing so out of kind of a wishfulness um, for the ability to, um, you know, redo the Obama period. Um, probably because they mistakenly perceive Obama as a missed opportunity for the left. Um, yeah, it's also really different than the Great Depression, I think. And I think that's honestly a matter of, of Bonapartism. Um, because with the Great Depression, um, you have countries who moved off of the gold standard earlier than other countries, and those countries, uh, were able to recover earlier. And that's because, um being off the gold standard basically gives the state um, more control over a country's uh, monetary future. Um, And particularly, that was really important, because one of the reasons the U.S. took so long to recover is because they weren't able to prevent a further contraction in the money supply in the 30s. So, like, imagine you're a brave strapping young lad in the 30s and you want to go and start a business, take a risk, well, there's no bank to lend you that money. Because there's no bank to lend you that money, um, you can't go and start your business. You can't go and start your business, which means you're not going to hire anyone. And also it means that your suppliers, your would-be suppliers aren't going to hire anyone. Your would-be customers um, are not going to benefit from your goods. So that's just like, that's the 10-year slump um yeah and that sucks but it's it's i I think it's very different um than both situations as well and there's probably a wishfulness um for a new new deal kind of package um which again didn't work the first time um and also the world is totally different and also there's no marxism so uh, things are just really different um thanks one yeah take care
2: up with Philip Cunliffe following a panel event held at the London School of Economics entitled After the Election What's Left. Philip is an academic at the University of Kent and author of Lenin Lives. He is also a co-founder of The Full Brexit. What follows is an edited recording of our conversation. How did you feel about the panel? I mean I felt you know it was a
7: useful discussion to the extent that um, I think I put across a you know particular point of view. I think it I mean, I think it was successful from the platypus point of view. I didn't feel that I was particularly challenged or put under pressure by anyone on the panel um they were all very i think um uh kind of eccentric in different ways, representatives of various leftist tendencies, so yeah, so I mean like I say, I mean I can see why you know I understand the rationale for why platypus constructs the panels the way that it does, and I um, you know, could see why they chose the people they did. but I can't say that I felt that it was uh, particularly challenging um, or necessarily that engaging with them with those three uh, with the three representatives of those various tendencies was necessarily useful in terms of clarifying what the issues are before us.
2: I can ask you, how did you originally become interested in the left and Marxism? So what forms has your political activity taken?
7: So my interest in Marxism was almost entirely born from university. Um, During my undergraduate degree at Oxford, I encountered people who gave me an entirely new perspective on what it meant to be left wing, or indeed what Marxism meant. Up until that point... Which is to say, until I encountered those ideas, I think it would probably have been best, I mean, I wouldn't have had the language to describe myself in this way at the time, but um, looking back retrospectively, I can say I was probably something like a left-wing Thatcherite of some variety when I arrived at university for my undergraduate studies back in the late 90s, and that I encountered a variety of ideas, um, anti-globalisation anarchism, old kind of or degenerate forms of Marxism associated with the various kind of left-wing group of schools that live on university campuses as well as uh, libertarianism of various stripes, left-wing, right-wing. So I mean uh, there were a number of different ideas which I was encountered, exposed to and absorbed in different ways but a serious and sophisticated understanding of Marxism came through my tutors.
2: The new perspective, the perspective that they offered, what was it about this on a theoretical level that interested you?
7: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it was very serious, um, very considered. It was focused on the classical kind of texts of Marxism, whereas all the other exposure to Marxist or uh, Marx, Marxism or Marxoid kinds of theories, you know, you would do maybe Antonio Gramsci or um, Louis Althusser in various um sociological theory type courses, you would do a bit of Marx. Oxford University, at least at the time, had, uh, was one of the few universities that had an entire course devoted to Marxism. And so there was the opportunity to go into tremendous depth with classical texts.
2: What do you mean you were a left-wing Thatcherite?
7: Yeah, I realized as I said it that it was hard to explain, but I suppose I was... Um, leaving school, I was a believer in multicultural neoliberal globalization. Again, I might not have had the capacity to conceptualize it like that at the time, but I accepted the idea of um, the ultimate promise of um, market capitalism, particularly in its late 90s globalized form, of the kind of throbbing, pulsating appeal of uh, a fast-paced global capitalism, dynamic capitalism, that the kind of heroes of society were entrepreneurs, big businesses, Mm -hmm. um, but that this had to be uh, leavened with various social justice concerns. So to that extent, a left-wing Thatcherite.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Interesting. So I wanted to bring up the uh, panel we held at LSE um, and kind of bring up a question about democracy and the left that you especially brought up in your opening remarks. Um, So you mentioned that Labour in the last general election uh, under Jeremy Corbyn were acting or kind of pitching themselves as a democratic elite, uh, promising to shower people with welfare and fast broadband um, and endless benefits, but that it couldn't offer working class self-determination, you said, uh, nor like a true working class um, political agency, um, which you then cite something like Brexit as an example of. Yeah. Is there a relationship between the left and democracy? And if so, how should this relationship take shape for a true left?
7: I don't recall saying characterising Labour as a democratic elite, and uh, certainly I didn't see the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn as embodying anything particularly democratic, quite the opposite in the way in which it attempted to overturn the results of the brexit referendum in its electoral mm. platform in late 2019 mm-hmm. so but i mean you know that's just a minor quibble with them with the uh, what you said otherwise i did characterize the labor party as basically their electoral pitch being to shower the masses from on high without offering to respect the political agency of their working-class voters who had very clearly voted for Brexit, particularly in the northern constituencies and in the Midlands, the constituencies that the Labour Party needed in order to win a majority in Parliament. Mm-hmm. So the failure to respect the expressed political wishes of Labour Party voters, and for me, I suppose, I mean, those that I idea, democratic ideal was um, embodied in the Brexit referendum and in its aftermath in the scepticism of uh, so many Leave voters and so many working class Leave voters in any attempts to overturn or erode the results of the 2016 referendum. And for me, I suppose democracy, or the ideal of democracy means that process of mass collective participation in self-government. And that needs certain kind of um, as an ideal and as an abstract um, characterization. But in the context of Um, Britain in the last few years, it specifically meant um, fidelity to the uh, Brexit referendum and the choice to leave the European Union. Not least because the structure of the referendum, the choice that it involved, um, the context within which the referendum took place, meant that it also was a blow against the existing political order. And that's also it offered a potential to For the masses, at least to some degree, to reshape the state and to bend the political class more to their will. And that seemed to me to be immensely valuable and welcome.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The relationship between democracy and the left would be ideally democratic self-governance
7: yeah mass participation in the process of self-rule which obviously requires um you know kind of it's a stru- it has to be a structured institutionalized process
2: so then if i was to put it that um Marx saw like democracy how we experience it as symptomatic of the crisis of bourgeois society that would need to be overcome and in its overcoming would be also fulfilled in a way and that after like um, the revolutions of 1848, um, he recognised the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And one could say that the, the left in the 20th century, in various ways, has kind of avoided the question of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Why would a political party for socialism be necessary for overcoming the crisis of bourgeois society and capitalism?
7: You still need the conscious expression of human will and the willingness to um, take control of society and to give it conscious purpose and direction in the way in which modern society, capitalist society, bourgeois society, however you wish to describe it, however, it requires all of that to be expressed in an institutionalized and organized form and in political agency needs to be given institutional expression and it seems to me for that, well you do need political parties in order to undertake that process of the conscious reorganization of society,
2: you also say that Corbynism showed like a hostility to the to the working class, um, and I was just wondering what you meant by that.
7: Sure. So, what characterised Corbynism was everything was promised, spending on infrastructure, the free fibre broadband, spending on health. And at the leftist fringes of the Corbynista project, uh, so those associated, the literal communists associated with Navarra Media, for example, and their project of fully automated luxury communism, a book published by Aaron Bustani, even more sweepingly grandiose, even grandiloquent um, visions were offered of a future of gene editing and asteroid mining. The most fantastical promises were made. The one thing that wasn't offered was respect for working class voters which is what they voted for in 2016, namely Brexit, and in the general election in 2017. They voted for parties who promised to respect the outcome of the Brexit referendum. So there was this contradiction. On the one hand, the Labour Party offered itself as offering everything to the workers. On the other hand, the one thing they didn't offer them was respect for their democratic will. And it was that contradiction on which the Corbynista project founded
2: What does class mean for the left?
7: It should be understood in the classical terms of how the economic groups in relation to the ownership and access to the means of production. As part of that, though, understanding economic production and uh, the forces and relations of production as a kind of dynamic and evolving totality then classes as part of that also need to be understood as historical actors. So groups that have, in the context of particular social structures and particular economic structures, they have particular interests and a particular kind of agency to express and a particular kind of set of interests and historic goals to fulfil.
2: What's the historic goal of a class?
7: Uh, Well, as a historic actors, what their historic mission might be, I suppose, the historic mission of the proletariat, as understood in classical Marxism, was that its own emancipation from capitalism would be the emancipation of society as a whole. By virtue of its location, by virtue of its agency, by virtue of its um, capacity to overthrow and transform or well, to overthrow capitalism... In the process, it transforms society and capitalist society into socialist society. That was the historic mission of the proletariat. And in fact, I suppose the only historic mission that ultimately really counts for Marxism.
2: Is Marxism important today? And if so, how?
7: It's a hard question to answer, I suppose, in the sense that obviously it's, uh, despite, you know, there's regular claims of a return to Marx. Any kind of dip in the stock market now in the last 10 years or so seems to be an occasion to claim that Marx has been ultimately completely vindicated, that we need serious systematic critiques of capitalism. So there's that very kind of superficial and tawdry understanding of the importance and relevance of of Marx and Marxism. There is obviously no serious Marxist project uh, in any kind of sophisticated theoretical or political form. And so to that extent, I suppose, you know, Marx and Marxism isn't important. It only exists in a very um, uh, shadowy form. But beyond that, I think it is important because it seems to me that in light of the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War, and particularly, I suppose, in light of the various political attempts to resolve the social and economic problems resulting from the 2008 crash over the last ten years. What's so striking is the historical exhaustion of all the various political alternatives on offer, um, the historic and kind of social stagnation of the leading western states in the world, and that seems to me to speak to the fact of uh, capitalist society having missed it missed its opportunity to renew itself which was the offer in a sense of what marxism offered it was an offer to human society of an opportunity to renew itself and to reconstitute itself into a superior form of society into uh, into a, into socialism and the failure of that project leaves us in this utterly um confused and incoherent regressive state in which it's not something, it doesn't seem to me uh, something to draw succour from or necessarily be hopeful about to some extent. The fact that Marxism is still important as as still being the only uh, serious attempt to resolve the contradictions of capitalism in a way that's consistent with the historical gains of modernity and the Enlightenment, that seems to me to be a kind of a condemnation, because it means in effect that we live in a state of such profound failure and such profound regression that we still are forced and compelled to return to problems and answers that were identified in the 19th century. But I think so to that extent it is important in that it still seems to me to, re- to be the only viable coherent project on offer for resolving the problems of contemporary society in a way that offers the possibility of human emancipation. And that seems to me to be in a way a terrible, uh, a terrible indictment of humanity. What it means is that there's no escaping it. There's no escaping our problems. Um, we can't simply overcome them, we've tried searching for alternative um, social models, alternative economic models, alternative models of political critique. Um, we've sought to reject emancipation in various ways, which you could characterize as kind of postmodern politics. We've sought to um, evade the problem of capitalism or treat nat- effectively naturalize capitalism. Um, through various kind of forms of uh, neoliberal economics. All of these uh, attempts to resolve the fundamental problems, contradictions of society have failed. And we're still left with uh, the historic problems identified um, by Marx and Engels in the 19th century. And that seems to me to be, even though we have no means of practically realizing... Um, resolving those problems and realising solutions and that seems to me to be a truly terrible fate to be stuck in to still have kind of a looming historic problem hanging over us with no uh, practical means of resolving the problems identified by thinkers from uh, 150 years ago Mm -hmm.
2: mhm, mhm And you mentioned that the the left failed. Um, When did the left fail?
7: So there's a famous uh, passage by Lauren Goldner where he talks about how, you know, in discussions that he was involved in during the Cold War, uh, you could very precisely predict all sorts of political positions by reference to the point at which any particular individual identified the defeat of the left. Mm. If they identified it Mm. in 1956 you'd be able to uh, predict all sorts of um, things about what their political views would be. If they identified it in 1924, you'd have a different set of um, predictions about what their behavior would be, but they'd be nonetheless consistent. If you identify it in uh, 1917, if you identify the defeat in 1914, if you identify the defeat in 1922, Mm -hmm. there are obviously decisive historical turning points throughout the 20th century. And that each defeat cumulatively worsens the uh, political state of the left. But to some extent, it's also a mistake, I think, to search for the single moment of original sin when it all goes wrong. And it's something that's counselled uh, by Jack not to try and identify that kind of moment at which uh, you know it's kind of a futile effort. It's taking that advice, uh, I took that to heart when I wrote Lenin Lives, where I kind of project a counterfactual mm-hmm. history of the success of the Russian Revolution and spreading to the rest of Europe, and eventually to the Americas, leading to a global um, socialist world by the middle of the 20th century. But I never identify the single point at which everything kind of magically turned around, mm-hmm. because I think it, it's ultimately futile. And the reason being that it there isn't a single moment, it's more... It's less any single moment, but rather the fact that the left accommodated itself to defeat. It made virtue of necessity. It reinterpreted defeats as victories, set significant step backs as actual gains or stepping stones towards some global socialist project. And obviously the most obvious example of this would be the fact of the defeat of the Russian Revolution and its containment within Russia is transformed into the ideal of socialism in one country. Mm-hmm. But there are other examples as well of how the left repeatedly accommodated itself to defeat and in that process uh, erased any understanding of what socialist future might look like or what revolutionary victory or political progress even or social progress would even look like. So I've always tried to avoid identifying a single moment because I think it's a trap effectively and a diversion. hmm hmm
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You also mentioned that the left is addressing contradictions of society or in society. Uh, what did you mean by that? I
7: mean there are many ways, I suppose, in different conceptual scales at which you could understand the problem. But I, I still think it's useful to understand it in the very basic classical Marxist terms of tension between the forces of production and the relations of production, the political, legal social structures that we have they're not designed in such a way as to best accommodate the tremendous productivity and underlying uh, power of industrial capitalism the forces of production the technological capacity the scientific capacity the industrial capacity that we have in the contemporary world that ultimately I think the historic task before humanity is still to reconcile those two social forms to reconcile the relations of production with the forces of production and the process of doing that of um, uh, better aligning or reshaping our relations of production around the underlying forces of production is itself the process of transforming capitalism into socialism Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how would a political party for socialism facilitate that transformation
7: well, I suppose if I knew, I would be, I would be doing it. Um, <laughs> it would do it by putting the project on the agenda, um, first and foremost. It would do it by organising the proletariat for the seizure of political power and for transforming the... Uh, dissolving away the capitalist state and the existing political structures and legal structures of capitalism and institutionalizing ultimately institutionalizing the dictatorship of the proletariat and that that would be the the beginning I think as well as the I mean the first kind of immediate step to reconciling the forces and the relations of production as I put it earlier and the beginning of um, shaping a new kind of society
2: and to finish up what is next for the millennial left
7: well in light of the way the the Democratic primaries are going in the US, it seems very little. So the millennial left seems to have nothing to show for itself at all. If it seems as probable now that um, Bernie Sanders is on the cusp of a defeat to Joe Biden in the Democratic primaries, then it means that the millennial left has nothing to show because um, Syriza, the Greek left party that swept into power in 2015, folded a long time ago and is now defeated in an opposition. Podemos has um, become a prop to the old social democratic party in Spain. Corbynism failed to deal with Brexit and as a result it was shattered. And now it seems that Bernie is on the cusp of defeat. So there's nothing left of the millennial left. They've been roundly defeated and in the 12 years or so since the crash of 2008, there's nothing to show for the left. And that's truly, uh, truly an astonishing verdict on their failure.
2: Okay, um, I think that's it. And um, thanks for joining me.
7: All right. Thank you. Bye.
4: production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalogue of the Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Um,
0: alright, I don't have anything else to say.
2: I don't have anything else to say, although I think I might have had corona this week. Finishing now, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, there it is. It <laughs> won't to down the alley. Did you guys hear that? So don't worry. Did
0: you hear that guys? <laughs> Did you hear it? Was I I'm saying. sorry. I'm yeah. so sorry.